All right, Proverbs chapter 13, if you'll turn with me there once again. We didn't quite get out of the 13th chapter together last time. We went down as far as verse 20, as we're now kind of in this workshop of wisdom here, looking at the different Proverbs uh, one by one. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 21 is where we pick up this evening. It tells us, evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. So you notice in this psalm here, there is this reference that whatever we do or whatever we're pursuing, that ultimately is going to be that which sort of ends up pursuing us in return or ends up being the uh, reward, if you would, that comes back upon us. We read here that if we live sinfully, he says, the beginning of verse 21, evil pursues sinners. So if we live sinfully, then we're going to be pursued, the Bible says, or hunted down by the consequences of evil then coming upon us. Again, just this many, many a times we see this idea all throughout the Word of God. Many times it's repeated in different ways through the book of Proverbs as God is seeking to give us wisdom for life, this idea of just simple sowing and reaping. And here he says that if we live like a sinner or we live sinfully, then we can know that we are going to be pursued as a return upon that by the consequences of evil coming upon our lives and eventually catching up to us. That is, the suffering and problematic consequences will not be escapable. Uh, we may elude them for a time, and that's the deception in all of that. Oh, well, I did what was wrong and nothing bad happened. Oh, I did what was wrong again. Nothing bad still happened. And then we almost begin to, in this self-deception, begin to buy into this idea that we can continue to do what's sinful or we continue to behave in a wrong manner and that somehow uh, maybe God's just going to allow us to get away with it. And of course, the greatest deception is that somehow God's okay with it. Uh, and if somehow that God's giving us our allowance and we just kind of knows that's my my thing, that's my Achilles heel, or that's my weak spot. And it's almost as if somehow God makes an exception for certain individuals in certain areas and that standard of his word or this thing we know that's clearly his will. I mean, that applies to most people, but God gives me an exception and this is kind of my exception category. And if we buy into that mentality, it's just a matter of time until we realize that that is just foolish and self-deception because what we sow, we ultimately reap. And so here he says, look, if we live sinfully, the sinner eventually will be hunted down by the consequences. It will catch up in time and evil will end up coming upon them. Now, in contrast to that, the same works in a wonderful way, in a good and a healthy and a beneficial way. He says there, but to the righteous, and again, that's a reference to those who live right with God, those who live in right relationship with God, those who live right before God, as well as live in right relationship with fellow man on the horizontal, he said, in the same way, we can be confident that good shall be repaid unto us. So if we live right in time, the Bible says that we will be rewarded for living in those good ways, that God's going to allow that to go uh, you know, unanswered for faithfully doing what is right and good and what is godly in time. There will come the blessing. We will be repaid. Uh, God rewards those who live in right ways. That's why the Bible tells us in the New Testament, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap 
if we don't lose heart. The idea is if we don't give up. And again, that, that's an important thing because in the same way it is a deception to think we can live sinfully and that evil consequences won't come upon us, to a degree it is also another form of self-deception to fall into kind of the discouragement or the despair of thinking that, well, I've been doing what's good, I kept doing what's good, I keep doing what's good, and nothing good ever comes out of it. Or there's no reward, or there's no benefit, and kind of it's vain, and we start to grow weary in well-doing, and we think that somehow, well, God's just not going to bless this, God's not going to reward this, and we can almost default in growing weary and kind of just then, well, just forget it. I'm just, I'm tired of pursuing that. I'm just going to give up on this. I'm going to stop doing that good thing that maybe we were doing uh, because in due time, it hasn't come around yet. The season didn't come and maybe it was right around the corner. It just wasn't the right season. And sometimes we can cast aside doing what's good in our weariness in self-deception. And God says, in due season, it'll come. And God, all throughout his word, numerous times promises, here's just another principle that just like evil comes upon the sinful, he says, those who do righteous, good will be repaid. Ultimately, God will find a way to reward good to his servants. Verse 22, he says, and a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, that is, to not only his most recent generation, but to the grandchildren as well. He says, but the wealth of the sinner, in contrast, is stored up for the righteous. In other words, the Bible teaches that the wise man with a good heart, a heart of love towards his children and his grandchildren will always want to give a better life to his own children and to his grandchildren that they themselves experienced. The, the person who, as a parent, as a grandparent, who has God's wisdom and a heart of love says, you know what, if I can leave a better existence for my kids, a better existence for my grandchildren, then that is certainly something that is a good and a healthy thing to do. And the Bible affirms that and encourages that as just a wise way of living of just a good heart attitude to want to do better for those coming behind us if in some way we can. And certainly that applies financially, if possible, if by good stewardship and hard work and management of resources, one can leave a better life for their kids or for their grandkids. God commends that. That's a good and a noble thing. But look, that may not always be possible financially. It may be that perhaps a person's not able to do such a thing financially. But look, an inheritance is not just based upon what you can leave in dollars and cents in a bank account. An inheritance is much, much more than that. And ultimately, if all some people do is leave a huge nest egg financially, but they never leave anything of righteous, godly, healthy training as an inheritance for the next generation to emulate and follow after, they're doing them more of a disservice than they are good. And we've all seen that. Perhaps you've been part and participant to that. It's amazing the amount of ugly that comes out when it comes time for the inheritance to be dispersed. I've seen it more than enough times that I'd like to see, where it's amazing how all of a sudden, if all the inheritance is is just the money or just the house or houses or what there is, how, how just really ugly things can happen. And the greatest inheritance any of us can leave is certainly to leave a godly legacy as a way of living 
to, to leave a lifestyle, to leave a, you know, a legacy to our children and to our grandchildren of this is how to live for God. This is how to live right. This is how families should function and to have a pattern of godliness and righteousness and, and just good familial health that we can pass on to our children and to our grandchildren. That is of much, much more value ultimately, and that is something that is a wonderful inheritance to pass on to the next generation. Either way, it's wise to want to leave that kind of a good inheritance in whatever way to give a better life to the next generation. Now, in contrast to that, he says that the sinful person who just the idea is dishonors God, they end up, the Bible says, just losing everything that they had. Uh, to live in a wrong way ends up resulting not just in loss personally, but there's nothing at all to pass on to the next generation. He says here, God may just turn over what they had to people who will handle it in a much better way by just doing what is right instead of them. Verse 23 says, and much food is in the fallow ground of the poor, and for lack of justice, there is waste. So verse 23 speaks of wisdom regarding making good use of opportunity. And here he describes how the wise person is resourceful and makes good use of opportunity that's in front of them. In contrast to lacking good judgment and not exercising good judgment, therefore making bad decisions or poor decisions and just wasting what is good. Wasting resources, wasting opportunities, says there's much food to be found in the fallow ground of the poor. They, the poor may not have much, but they also realize, hey, but there is, there is things to be benefited from. We have this ground in front of us. We can work it. We can till it. And we may not have a lot, but if we put in the effort with the opportunity and resource we have, maybe there is some food we can get out of this to sustain ourselves. And the idea is being useful and resourceful with good, making good use of the opportunity, where in contrast, he says, for lack of justice, that is poor judgment, lack of making right decisions, there ends up being waste. And so God encourages the wise person is not wasteful, the foolish person is wasteful, the wise person makes good use of whatever opportunity and resource they have at their disposal. Verse 24, he says, he who spares his rod hates his son. And again, notice the strong word. God brings back our term here, hates again. And again, uh, so interesting to see that God does not have a problem using that intense, strong language to describe something uh, that is you know, very important. He who spares his rod, that is withholds discipline, correction, punishment. That's the idea of the rod there to give physical punishment in some way. He says, hates his son, but he who loves him, contrast of hating his child, he who loves their child disciplines him promptly. So notice, this is one of many, many proverbs that give insight regarding how to not just parent, but to parent well, to parent wisely. And again, uh, anybody can be a parent, but it really takes intentional effort and discipline and wisdom to truly be a good parent and to raise good children. Anybody can raise children. That is, you can keep them alive, you can keep them out of jail, and by the time they turn 18, you can cut them loose and say, you didn't get arrested, I fed you, you didn't starve to death, go ruin everybody else's life now. 
People can raise children, but that's vastly different than raising good children, raising godly children. That takes a lot of work. It takes being on 24-7. It takes being not distracted by this and encumbered by that and engaged in this. It literally takes being very intentional. And for a parent, we see that healthy love directs us, the Bible says here in verse 24, to take very serious our role to cultivate our child's character, to take very serious the responsibility that we have been given by God as the parent to develop our child's character, to drive out of them things that are not good and to impart into them things that are good and that are valuable. We're going to see later on one of our Proverbs that says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. It's the rod of correction that drives it far from them. In other words, why do children behave foolishly? Because they're children. You know, sometimes I see parents, especially with their small children, they get so frustrated and think, why do they behave? Because they're children. They're going to behave foolishly. Now, it doesn't mean that we permit them and we allow them to behave disrespectfully or dishonorably or to be disobedient in any way to our authority. That's our problem when we're doing that. An out-of-control child is not a child's problem. It's a parent's problem. God says it's the parent's job to regulate behavior, to control and to guide their children by cultivating their character. And notice the Bible says here in verse 24, to withhold corrective discipline as it is needed, and it is needed for every single child that grows up. And he says to withhold corrective discipline, to spare the rod when it's needed. And again, the idea of the rod there is, the Bible teaches, spanking in a controlled manner. The Bible does not teach child abuse. It doesn't teach beating our kids in anger or smacking them in frustration. Again, that, that, that's, that's wrong. The Bible teaches in a controlled manner with self-control in a way that is corrective, not punitive, in a way that is helpful to teach them lessons, not to harm them or to hurt them, but to use self-control and in a moderate way to, to spank in a controlled manner. He says to not do such, notice God says this, not me, in case you struggle with it. He says to spare the rod indicates not that you care about your child, God says it's, it indicates that you actually don't care about your child. God says, in essence, what it indicates is you actually love yourself and care more about yourself than you actually do the welfare of your children. Because for whether it's because, well, well, I just don't like to do that, or that seems mean, or I want my, you know, I don't want to have to do that, or people may judge me, or God says, no, you're showing if you're sparing and withholding corrective discipline when it is necessary for their development, God says you're showing that you actually don't care at all about your child. Because he says, he who loves their child is the one who will discipline them, and notice, discipline them promptly. In other words, disciplinary actions are essential to drive out wrong behavior, to, to get rid of unhealthy character, and to invest in them the understanding. And this is the idea of, uh, of spanking from a scriptural perspective here, corrective discipline, again, Certain things, folks, a timeout ain't going to fix it. And the reality is this. If we do not, to some degree, teach our children very early on in life, bad decision equals painful consequence. And that's the idea there. That's the idea of, of a 
punitive, corrective, spanking type disciplinary action with a young child in a self-controlled way. It simply teaches them because you can't reason with a toddler any more than you reason with a terrorist. But what you teach them is bad decision, painful consequence. Bad decision, painful consequence. Disobey my word, painful consequence. Sooner or later, the concept starts to be grasped without even having to reason, if I disobey your word, a painful consequence comes. When I rebel against authority, I bring painful consequences into my life. And so God wants us to gradually teach in that way to help them understand. And again, notice the key really above all else is dealing with things at the time that they happen with teachable moments as they exist, disciplining them promptly, the ideas consistently. When they misbehave, when they do something wrong, you know, for us, we, we had a Mr. Woody. That's what we had. And Mr. Woody was our way to keep our hand. I didn't want my children envisioning my hand as something that brought pain into their life. I wanted them to see my hands as a representative of that which cared for them and took care of them and protected them. So I took the Bible literally, sparing the rod. Okay, well, there you go, a rod. That's an instrument. Whenever God judged his children, his children, the children of Israel, he always used, a lot of times, more often than not, did he not, another nation. That was his instrument. He'd raise up a rod, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Philistines. And God would use an instrument, a disciplinary instrument to, in a sense, spank his children to teach them their wrong behavior was not healthy and to try and cultivate their character and drive those unhealthy things out of them. And so in the same manner, we had a Mr. Woody. And you know what Mr. Woody also did for my wife and I is it also, it also kept us from then ever just spanking in just impulsive anger because Mr. Woody was in a certain spot. And so what it required was, you know what? I, I'm sorry there, you know, you're, you're gonna have to get a, a discipline for this. And so you go back there and then I had to go over there and open the drawer and get Mr. Woody out. And it gave me a few minutes rather than just an anger, acting in frustration or impulsively. It, it forced me to understand this was a disciplinary action in love and to discipline them. And then afterwards, after evoking, you know, some tears or a sense of broken spirit or repentance to then console them, to tell them I love them, to explain to them why this was necessary, and just in a simple way to begin cultivating this understanding in their lives. But again, the, the whole implication, and we'll see this many times in Proverbs, is parenting is not something that we can do in a distracted or a lazy way. And there has to be consistency. There has to be, you know, one of the mo most, you know, uh, confusing and frustrating things that parents and children can get into a rhythm sometimes. And, and I, I have, you probably perhaps have seen as well by way of observation, this idea where there's not disciplining promptly, there's not consistency, and it becomes stop, 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 stop. Well, Johnny knows I got at least three more stops before he really freaks out. I get at least seven stops. They're, they're, they're not dumb. I mean, they're, they're really savvy kids are. Or sit right here and do not move. I, I said sit right here, and then they sit there, and then as soon as the parent turns their back, they go run off and play with their friends again. And then the parent does nothing about it. And so the idea is what's conveyed to the kid is as soon as I just comply a little bit, that's all I really have to do, that pacifies them, and then I can just rebel and go do what I want afterwards anyway. 
And again, we're conveying confusion to our children when he does this. And God says, look, there needs to be this consistent, focused discipline. And again, that's why parenting is not for lazy people. It is a tough ministry. It is something you've got to be committed to. You need to be engaged in. Do any of us do it perfectly? Absolutely not. But we have to be willing to put our whole heart into it if we want to do things God's way and really cultivate character. And again, it takes that love for our kids to say, you know what? My goal is to do what the Bible says. You're like an arrow in my quiver. And an arrow's goal is eventually to be what? Taken out and launched. And it may seem like it's a long, exhausting time, right, to raise your kids from from infancy all the way into adulthood, but boy, oh boy, even a a good two decades or so, that's really, it's not a whole lot of time when you consider the fact that you start out with raw material, sinner, selfish little sinner, right? I mean, they, they start screaming as soon as they're in the crib. If they could, they'd rip that bar off. And, and do whatever they want to. And again, it's something that we have to pour ourselves into and to God's design of doing such yields wonderful fruit. And so God repetitiously gives this advice to us as parents to do things his way. God is a wise father. He wants us to raise godly offspring and he gives to us great insight. And I encourage you, if you're still in the parenting process or you know parents, to encourage them to try it God's way. It works wonderfully when we yield to God's way. None of us is perfect, but God gives us a wonderful, wise paradigm to kind of give us a course to bring some principles into how we parent in an intentional way. Verse 25, he says in chapter 13, the righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. So notice those who live righteously, the Bible says, will be satisfied They'll be fulfilled. That's the benefit of living a righteous life to the satisfying notice of the soul. That is the inward life. So he says, living righteously brings about a fulfilled life. You become satisfied inwardly by living that way. Where living wickedly, no matter how self-indulgent a person may live in their sinful pursuits, he says, the stomach of the wicked, in contrast, shall always be in want. The idea is that it'll always be an empty life. A person can live wickedly and it look like they're you know, enjoying life, but the bottom line is God says they're, they're living with an empty tank and an empty stomach all the time. They put their head down on their pillow at night and they're very miserable. They're dissatisfied with emptiness within. And so again, God's saying, be wise, live God's way. Live God's way. There's greater reward in doing such. Chapter 14, he comes back to this idea of the domestic life again, the, the family. He says, chapter 14, verse one here, the wise woman builds her house but the foolish woman pulls it down with her own hands. So notice here how God indicates so clearly here that the wife and the mother, he's talking about the household. So he says the wife and the mother who is wise recognizes she has a very powerful influence upon the home life. And and so here the Bible addresses that. God's wanting to give wisdom to the wives, to the mothers, about the family environment, the condition of the home life, the atmosphere in the household, among the family, in the marriage, with the kids, the family dynamic. And he says, wives and mothers, don't miss how much of a powerful influence you can have. Again, the book of Psalms talks about how the wife is like the heart of the home. 
and how the heart just pumps out to the rest of the body. And so the influence of a, a wife and a mom is incredibly powerful. So notice he says, a woman who is a wife or a mother among her household that's exercising wisdom, a wise woman walking in wisdom, exercising God's wisdom, will seek to, he says, build her house in good ways. That is, she'll build a good and a healthy home life. She'll build a good and a healthy marriage. She'll speak in ways and behave in ways and seek to do things to try and build up the family life, to strengthen the family life, to make it more beneficial for everyone, where in contrast, he says, the foolish woman, she pulls it down with her own hand. So notice, influence can work both ways. So a wife can also behave foolishly. A mother can also behave foolishly and conduct themselves in ways whereby their behavior or their attitude or their words or maybe their disengagement or maybe their preoccupation with other things, whereby they're not building their home life, strengthening their marriage and building up their family life with their kids, but what they're actually doing is one by one kind of pulling the whole thing down and deconstructing the home. And they're basically pulling down their own. The idea is a, a woman tearing their own home apart, weakening their own family life, ruining even a marriage or a family life. That's a sad and a tragic thing. So he encourages the women, be the wise woman and not the foolish one. Verse 2, he says, he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. The idea here seems to be in verse 2 that the person or the way a person lives is kind of a, you might say, a reflection, a clear reflection of where they're really at in their relationship with the Lord. Again, how do we know where we're at in our relationship with the Lord? How do we know where someone is sincerely with their relationship with the Lord? And here this proverb seems to say that the way a person lives will reflect that. If we have a right relationship with the Lord, he says, verse 2, he who walks in his uprightness is someone who clearly, he says, fears the Lord. So if we have a right relationship with the Lord, we're going to walk in a right way in our lives because our relationship with the Lord is going to cause us then to live out a right way in front of others and a right way toward others. We're going to live in a right manner because we're in right relationship with God. We fear God. We have respect for him. But, he says, the person who's perverse in his ways is living in a crooked, perverse manner because they just despise God. So if we're not in right relationship with God, we're going to live foolishly. So it seems the crux of the proverb here, the wisdom, is that wise people will focus foremost on their relationship with God. Because if I focus foremost on my relationship with God, that is going to be the very thing that is then going to basically dictate how I live out the remainder of my life. Everything stems from my relationship with God accordingly. Verse 3, he says, And in the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. So another proverb coming back here to the subject of our speech, of how we use our words, the way in which we communicate. And here he speaks of how foolish people, he says, verse 3, speak in proud ways. The idea is with an arrogant tone uh, or with words that come across in a prideful manner. He talks about the mouth of a fool is like a rod of pride. Again, you know, kind of, you know, clubbing people with our proud and our arrogant attitudes. So he says, foolish people speak in proud ways and in so doing, 
They abuse others with their words, by their arrogant speech or attitudes, or the idea is they may be because they speak in uh, a prideful way and they're proud in their heart and in their words, they, they bring a rot of punishment upon themselves. And sometimes our own pride and the way that we speak in our pride can be the very thing that kind of causes us to bring problems and punishment upon our own lives because we spoke in a proud manner, where he then says, in contrast, wise people, verse 3, uh, will speak in a way that preserves them, brings preservation. So wise people speak in a manner that preserve themselves from problems. In contrast, the wise in heart with humility speaks in a way taking into consideration, you know, let me use my words in a manner that I protect myself from more headaches, where I preserve this situation from becoming problematic, where I shield myself from ending up getting into a ruinous situation because I used my words in a very wise and understanding manner when I spoke. Verse 4, I like this proverb, very interesting, the concept in it. He says, where there are no, or where no oxen are, the trough, the idea is the feeding trough. Your translation may say the manger. The, the idea here is the barn. It's clean. But much increase comes by the strength of an ox. So the idea here in this proverb is, if your goal is to just keep a nice, clean, mess-free, easy, low-maintenance life, God says that's possible. If you want life to be clean and no messes and easy and low-maintenance and everything stays under control, God says that's fine, but you're never going to get anything done. You're never going to be productive. And so God says, if you want to live a nice, neat, clean, perfect life, no problems, no messages, no challenges, nothing to deal with, God says, that's fine, but understand you're never going to get anything done. He pictures here in an agriculture way, he says, where there's no oxen, there's no oxen in the barn, no oxen in the stalls, he says, the trough is clean, right? You don't have to put food in the feeding trough, so you're not going to have slop and saliva and mess and spilled food. Uh, you're not going to have what happens after it goes through the digestive tract and things to shovel up and pick up. You're not going to have messes in the barn. It's not going to stink. So he says, hey, if you want a nice, clean barn, just don't have any oxen. But he says, but understand, if you have no oxen, you're never going to get any work done in the field either. You're never going to increase. You're never going to get to do anything productive. You're never going to accomplish anything. Oxen were like tractors in that day. They were used for plowing the fields. So he says, if you want a clean stall with no messes, then you can't have oxen. But understand, if you don't have oxen, you're never going to get any increase. You're never going to be productive. You're never going to really do anything at all. You're just going to be able to show off your nice, clean barn. Look how clean my barn is. Well, great. You do nothing, but your barn's clean. And so God says here, these kind of things go hand in hand. When there's no oxen, there's no work, you can't accomplish anything. But he says, if you want to do things, that is, if you want to get things done, you want to accomplish some things, you want to try and get ahead, you want to do things once in a while, God says, just accept the reality. It goes with some messes. There's going to be things to deal with. There are going to be challenges to handle and messes to clean up and problems to work through. Again, dealing with the animals and the messes they make and learning how to take care of them. And again, if, if God's saying these two just go hand in hand. If you want to be a productive person, you want to do things, you got to understand part of that is sometimes messes happen. Sometimes things get fuzzy. Sometimes there are problems to deal with. And so if we want to just sit there and be proud of our nice little perfect little pristine clean life, God says that's fine. But 
nothing's ever going to come, but God says, if you want to get somewhere or do something, just accept the reality. There's going to be messes with the process. There's going to be things you got to work through. And again, whether that's engaging in marriage or having children or doing some effort or laboring in ministry, you got to be willing to, to deal with the hassles and the messes and the difficulties, God says, if you want to move forward and get somewhere. In order to experience blessing, God says, it requires managing the extra work that goes along with it and embracing some of the difficulties and the challenges as well. Great little nugget of thinking through how life works. What a good, wise uh, sense of uh, instruction God gives there. I love the picture of it all. Verse 5, he says, And a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. So here the idea is wisdom understands if you want to be a faithful and honest person, in your testimony, if you want your testimony to always be faithful and honest, in essence, God says in verse 5, then lying is not an option, ever, ever, because God says a faithful witness does not lie. A false witness is willing to utter lies. So God says if you want to be someone who's a faithful, honest person, just resolve lying's never an option. It's just not an option. It's nothing I can ever do. It's not something I ever allow an allowance for. Verse 6, he says, A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. So the idea seems to be here, those who, uh, kind of like a scoffer, a mocker, those who disrespectfully mock what's good and right, and they have no appreciation for what's good and right. God says here in verse 6, they'll never become wise. They'll never attain to any wisdom. What instead will happen, because they'll never find wisdom, is they'll just be perpetual fools. So God says those who mock at what is good and right, they will live in perpetual foolishness. But those who have a proper understanding of what's good and right, and they appreciate it, he says more easily they will increase in deeper learning. And light gives more light. And as we appreciate what is good and right, when you understand how to live right, when you start to live right, God says you'll just see more and more clearly. And you'll find you'll have greater knowledge and deeper understanding will be the reward of taking the path of light and doing what is right. Verse 7, he says, go from the presence of a foolish man. I know none of you know anyone like that, right? But God says, in case you meet one someday, a foolish man, a foolish woman, a foolish person, God says, here's the best advice many times, just go from their presence. Just, just get out of their way. Stay away from them, God says. When you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Notice God says, here's how typically foolish people reveal themselves through their lips by what they're saying and, and how they're talking, the idea here. So again, the Bible says when you can sense or see someone is foolish, sometimes the best approach, God says, is to just steer clear of them. Just, just avoid as much as possible. Don't overly engage them. Don't continually interact with them. Don't think perhaps you've got to correct them, fix them. God says sometimes the best thing to do with a fool is to just get out of their way. Stay away from them. God says, you send somebody foolish, God says, just go out of their presence. Just get away from them. Is that way you don't get drawn into their own foolishness? Wisdom knows that it's not healthy to interact with people more than necessary who just behave foolishly. 
who are just speaking foolishly, a lot of times it just ends up backfiring. Verse 8, he says, And the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. So the idea here, verse 8, wise people use prudence. Again, there's our word again, prudence, which means to think beyond the moment. That's what prudence is. Prudence is thinking beyond the moment of the impact of the future. The idea is you don't make decisions or judgments based upon what's happening in the present moment. Prudence always says, how will this affect tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? So you're always looking forward down the road using prudence. And he says, wise people use prudence and the wisdom of the prudent people is that they're not careless or impulsive, nor are they thoughtless in their pursuits. The idea is they consider a way, he says here in verse eight, before heading down it. They understand their way. They think ahead and before they just go running down a path or heading in a direction, they understand the way that they're going. They think about their ways before just journeying down a road. God says that's wisdom, using prudence. In contrast, he says the end of verse 8, fools don't consider where a path leads. They just go ramming down the road. They don't think ahead. They don't think about their way of doing things. And as a result of not thinking about the way that they're heading, he says the folly of fools is their deceit. The idea is their own foolishness just leads to being further deceived. They just end up getting more and more deceived because they live in complete foolishness. Verse 9, he then says, fools also mock at sin. But among the upright, there is favor. So the Bible says, those who mock at sin, that is, they, they, they make it a laughable thing. Those who can look at sinful behavior or ungodly activity or behaving in ways that are immoral, and they act like it's no big deal. And they mock at it, or worse, they make jokes about it. They think that immorality and sinful behavior is just a joke. God says such a person is a fool. They're foolish because they're not taking into consideration that those who live sinfully, as we've seen numerous times again, they end up suffering. And so God says it's the fool who makes light and jokes about sin because sin causes people to suffer. It ruins lives. It destroys people and those connected to them where he says, verse 9, those who live right, the upright, they experience favor. The idea is opposite. When we live right, we're considering God's approval. And as we consider God's approval, we seek to live for that. And as a result of that, we end up being blessed for that wise way of living right before God. His favor comes upon us. Verse 10, the heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy. It seems the idea here in verse 10 is that it is wise for us to realize that there at times are things going on inside of people's hearts, emotionally, things that they're dealing with internally, and it is wise for us to recognize that we don't always understand what people are going through. And we are utterly foolish to be presumptive in thinking all the time and sometimes saying out loud with our words too prematurely, oh, I know exactly what you're going through. And that person is thinking, you have no idea what I'm going through. God says right here, the heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not. 
So it's important that we realize wisdom tells us, look, there are going to be times when people are struggling with emotions or dealing with things internally, that they're going through hardships and, and inward wrestling things inside of them, and we don't always understand what they're truly dealing with or what they're really feeling, or what they're experiencing. We are not in their shoes. We did not go through the exact thing that they went through. We are not them with their temperament and their fractures from this in the past or, or you know, with, with the way that God's wired them. And so for us to try and insert ourselves and think that we can always understand what's going on in people, God says, that's really foolish. Again, that's why it is so important and why it is wise instead to simply be loving with people and patient with people and to give people latitude and grace when they're going through difficult things and they're struggling and to seek to just be gentle and kind and compassionate and to acknowledge that we don't know everything that they're feeling and we don't fully understand exactly what they are experiencing. They're dealing with something between them and God that only God himself who knows all things fully understands, and we don't truly understand what they're going through. But look, let me just say on connection to that too, it's also important as well when we're going through things to be gracious with others because they don't understand what you're going through. And so don't be overly upset or angry or frustrated with other people because in the same way you don't want them to act like they know what you're going through you also need to give latitude and grace when you're dealing with something and, and you and God alone are processing something internally to realize I can't expect someone else to understand exactly what I'm going through because they're not going through it. And I can take what help and benefit I can from their support and their encouragement and their love and their prayers. And he says, whether it's the deepest sorrows of bitterness or even the, the, the greatest amounts of joy, another person, a stranger, doesn't know the experience going on inside of her own heart. So again, whether it's the hardest things we process emotionally or the greatest even joys, you know, God says, nobody else can know the joy that you feel when you go through some of the most wonderful things in your life. It's something that, in a sense, we can't always fully understand one another, and wisdom helps us to pay attention to that. Remember, that was how Job's counselors got in big trouble. When they came and just sat with Job, they were doing a really good job. As soon as they started talking and trying to explain and, in a sense, diagnose and act like they knew what was going on and knew what Job was dealing with, that's when Job said, you've now become miserable counselors. You've now become miserable counselors because you're acting like you know when you don't know, when you don't fully understand. So again, really, really wise for us to take that in consideration as we relate to one another as people. Verse 11, he says, the house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Notice the contrast, the house versus the tent. He says the house, which seems like a permanent stable structure, a tent, which seems like something very temporary, very insecure, Something can be easily, you know, kind of uprooted. And here we read in verse 11 that stability and security is not determined by what one has materially. But God says stability and security is determined by how one lives morally and how one lives spiritually. Because notice he says, the house, which seems so permanent and stable of the wicked, he says, ends up being overthrown. Oh, man, they, just, they seem so stable and so secure. But God says if they're wicked, doesn't matter how stable or secure, they're going to burn the whole house down, and their house can be overthrown. 
oh, all I have is a tent. My life is just, I have nothing materially, and I just live in this tent and so on and so forth. But God says, you know what? But if you're living righteously, that is a more stable life in that tent than it is to have a mansion and be living wildly and immorally and ready to burn the whole house down at any given moment. And so again, stability and security is not what we have materially. It's where we're at in our relationship with God. He says here, those who seem to have little and appear to be weak, they can actually flourish and prosper. He says, the tent of the upright will flourish. God can use a life with just a tent. Again, look at Abraham's life. Abraham was a man of the tent and the altar. God's calling was upon his life. He was following God's will for his life, and he went around dwelling in tents and building altars. The tent defined his relationship with this world. The altar defined his relationship with that world. And God flourished and prospered Abraham in that way of life. Verse 12, he says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, here's a proverb that ends up being stated more than once. And again, as we've said before, God is never repetitious because he can't think of something else to say. Whenever God is repetitious and his value and space and scripture is incredibly important because it is the word of God. If God says something twice, it's worthy to pay attention to. It's one of those things is by way of the Proverbs that's a good proverb, I think, even just to kind of commit to memory that there's a way that seems right to a man, God says, but the end of that way is death. And that is something that we can all make mistake in this area. Sometimes we can be so certain as men and women that we are doing what is right. There are lots of people who are very sincere in what they're doing, but they're sincerely wrong. There are people who are sincerely radical Islamic terrorists, and they're very sincere. They'll, they'll literally put to death their own life to follow their calls and put to death the destruction of other lives for the sake of their... They're sincere, and they think they're right, but they're sincerely wrong. They're sincerely wrong. So all of us have this potential. Again, Jeremiah 19 says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? And so it's very important that we recognize in wisdom that there can be times where we may be certain that our way or what we're doing is right or that a certain way to take is right when the reality may ultimately be that the end of that path will result in total ruin, God says. So it's very wise for us to recognize and not be opposed to, you know, at times, you know, having reservation of, could I be wrong? Maybe is the way I've been doing this wrong? Is maybe the path that I'm taking, I, it seemed like the right thing to do, but, but maybe it's not the right path. In fact, maybe it's not really not the right path. It may actually be a path that ends up leading to total ruin in the end. And again, this is the idea. The way of a man seems right, but it's end. Again, it doesn't matter what way you're going, where's it going to end? That's the thing to ask. And so we all can fall prey to this. This is why accountability is important. This is why being prayerful and patient. This is why at times evaluating and examining our own hearts is good. This is why being in the word of God is good because God's word at times reproves us and it challenges us and it helps us course correct. So wise people, he says, will humbly realize that we can all be misguided. Sometimes we can be totally off track. And so because of that, the wise thing to do is we may need to reroute before we end up going down a deadly pathway because we thought we were right when really it was a 
a pathway towards destruction. So great, great verse to remember as we seek to live wisely. Verse 13, even in laughter, the Bible says, the heart may sorrow and the end of mirth may be grief. So notice, even in laughter, someone's you know, joking around, they're smiling, they're laughing about things, seeming like they're enjoying themselves. You know, think of the world today. Maybe they're a famous comedian. They're always making everybody else laugh. And then, then they're the next person who takes their own life because they were utterly miserable and sorrowful, even though outwardly they seem so happy and joyful and always laughing and making everyone laugh. And in some ways, that was not a clear reflection of what was really going on. And so he says here, verse 13, even in laughter, the heart may actually be full of sorrow. And the end of mirth, partying, rejoicing, celebrating, may be that a person is still in grief. So wisdom enlightens us to realize that just because someone can smile or laugh briefly does not mean that their heart is not full of sorrow. Or it does not mean that their heart is not still full of sorrow if maybe they're in a process of grieving something. And we don't prematurely think, oh, well, they're laughing now, so I guess they're over it. They seem to be celebrating or rejoicing now. I guess they're not grieving anymore. And God says, no, a heart can literally be sorrowful deep within and yet outwardly be able to laugh and enjoy a light moment or even be celebrating, but there may still be grief going on deep within. And so again, just important to recognize that wise people understand that it doesn't mean people aren't hurting or sad or grieving, even though they might laugh or smile or be able to enjoy a lighthearted moment. They may still be hurting within. He says, verse 14, the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. Now, when the Bible talks about a backslider, it's a picturesque word. It talks about backslidings. Here he refers to, in a personal way, the backslider. And when he talks about the backslider, the idea is a person who at one point had obtained progress in their spiritual life. They had gotten to this place in their walk with the Lord. They had made progress in spiritual maturity or development or overcoming some area of sin, but now they've regressed and they've gone backwards. So not only did they stop moving forward, but now they've actually gone backwards. They've slidden back into an old sin, or they've, they've kind of slidden back from a place where maybe they once were in a much closer relationship with the Lord. And so they've pulled back, they've turned away. Maybe at one time they were faithfully serving the Lord, and now they're no longer serving the Lord. And I guess this is the idea. Someone who had, who had been here, but now they've slidden backwards for whatever reason. They're, they've become a backslider. Notice the backslider in heart, because where's the issue always at? The heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. This is where it always stems from. And he says, so the backslider in heart tragically ends up being filled with his own ways where he says, but a good man will be satisfied from above. So notice backsliding, the Bible says, has a built-in correction system. It is a built-in punishment system. And God does this just in his loving wisdom, again, in the way he relates to us as parents. Just like God tells parents, if you love your kids, discipline them. God says the backslider in heart, what I do is I just let them be filled with their own ways. In other words, in essence, God just basically says, you know what, I'm going to allow you to do that, but I'm also going to let you see what it ends up like when you slide backwards like that. 
And so God basically has a built-in punishment or correction process of just letting the backslider reap the painful consequences or the unpleasant fruit, and they just become filled with their own ways. They end up experiencing what their backsliding produces in their life, whether it's problems or struggles or regrets or misery. And God says, I, I just, it, it works well. I just let them become filled with their own ways. God says, if that's the way you want to go backwards, I, I'll just let you be filled with that for a little while in hopes that we would turn around. And again, the Bible promises, God even says in Jeremiah, return to me, you backsliding children. And God says, I'll heal your backslidings. So God always gives the option for returning, but again, he, he knows how to get our attention. Now, in contrast, notice he says, but a good man, that is the one who's continuing to do good, will be satisfied from above. So the one who does good, notice, becomes satisfied, the idea is fulfilled from above. So God says, if you want to backslide and you want to take your own way, which is always a way that goes away from the Lord and backwards toward the world, backwards towards the flesh, then God says, if you want to, I'll let you experience what you can produce if you want to turn away from me. But God says, if you want to do what's good and you want to live the right way and, and walk in what's good and do what's godly, God says, here's what I'll do in that situation. I'll reward you from above. I'll be the one to reward you. You won't have to obtain your own reward. God says, I will cause you to be satisfied from above and be fulfilled in the same way that one turning from God can become incredibly dissatisfied. To do what is good and right, one of the greatest rewards of that is just to be fulfilled. It's just to be satisfied, just to experience inward contentment to know, hey, I'm doing what's right, man. I'm just trying to do what's good and right, and life may not be perfect, but any of God's children who are doing what's good and right understand the reality of, like, you know, life's good, man. Life's good. I'm not living like I used to, but this is pretty satisfying. It's pretty enjoyable. There's a wonderful thing. It's, it's a wonderful, pleasant thing to be able to live in right relationship with God and to experience the satisfaction, the goodness of God that comes along with that. Why don't we stop there? We'll kind of break in the middle of the chapter. Next week, maybe we'll just kind of finish up that chapter and the next time going forward, pick up right at the beginning of chapter 15. But let's stand. Let's pray.